Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I'm your host, Randy Newman, and on our podcast, we seek to pursue discipleship of the heart and mind. And because of that, I'm, I'm very excited to welcome our my conversation partner, Daryl Bach. Daryl, welcome to Questions That Matter. Oh, it's great to be with you, Randy, as always. Um, let me tell our listeners a little bit. Uh, Daryl has uh, spoken for us at the C.S. Lewis Institute uh, a number of times and written for us. Uh, he is a, a, re- a senior research professor for New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's written numerous uh, commentaries. I have benefited from his commentary on Luke and also on Acts. Um, but he also uh, directs or oversees the Culture and Cultural Engagement Center at uh, uh, Dallas Seminary, and has written a book recently on cultural intelligence. The subtitle is Living for God in a Diverse Pluralistic World. Boy, do we need this book. And uh, so the question that matters for today is how do we live for God in a very diverse pluralistic world? Daryl, start us off. How do we do this? Well, um, it's a challenge, and the premise of the book is is that we've spent three decades probably not doing it well and not doing it very biblically rooted, and so we need to take a look at the biblical basis for engagement, um, develop an ability to be better uh, engagers and listeners, and understand the nature of the assignment properly, and in the midst of doing that, we'll be better equipped to actually serve the church in terms of its own mission. So the challenge was to think about what we mean by cultural war and to root that biblically. Uh, And uh, the key passage, probably out of all the passages that get discussed, one chapter goes through six key passages for a theology of cultural engagement, is Ephesians 6.12, which says our battle is not, 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 that's emphatic, against flesh and blood but against rulers and authorities, the principalities, the powers, the cosmocrats, okay, if you will. That's the Greek word. I like to say, if you don't, if you think a bureaucrat's bad, you should meet a cosmocrat. And so, uh, um, so the point here is, is the people are not the enemy. Actually, if you pay attention to the Great Commission, they're the goal. People outside the church are the goal of the mission of the church and the message of the church. So we don't need to be turning them into enemies, even if they're opposed to us. Jesus told us to love our enemies but to think about a way of engagement that reflects the gospel of which a key part is to realize that God tapped us on the shoulder when our back was turned to him. We're supposed to model the same thing in our own engagement. Mm. Um, uh, Well, I want to come back to that about that gospel attitude or shape to everything we do, but let me just back up a little bit. And I don't, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on here because I don't want to spend it in the negative direction, but we do have to ask you started by saying that for three decades or more, we haven't engaged culture well. Why is that? Why haven't we? I think we've gotten distracted. We've gotten distracted from the fact that the gospel actually is the answer, the ultimate answer. And we have suggested that other things are the answer or that the um, background to our environment is so severe that the sky is falling. And I tell people, anyone who teaches the sky is falling theology doesn't understand the Bible and what it means for Christians to be in the midst of the world. And so um, so we've ministered out of a fear and out of a frustration. And 1 Peter 3, one of the other passages that I cite, 13 to 18, 
actually talks about not being fearful of those who stand opposed to us, but to actually be prepared to give a defense for the hope, notice that word, that is in us, um, and to do so with gentleness and respect. And we've lost the tone in the midst of our engagement. And by losing the tone in the midst of our engagement, we may be right in some of the things that we're saying, but we're wrong in the way we've engaged. Mm. Well, um, it's some of the problem also. I mean, is is some of it uh, kind of a reductionist? Well, we don't really care about culture. We only care about saving people's souls. We don't. We're just trying to pluck people out of a burning building, and we're not trying to put the building's fire out. Is that is that some of the problem? That's part of the problem. Is is that? But the problem is we're looking for that solution, and the gospel really doesn't have much to do with that solution in the way we've engaged the culture. We've put the solution in politics or in your vote or in something like that. And that doesn't mean that that our vote doesn't matter in the environment that surrounds us. But the scripture is pretty clear that our environment isn't going to totally get fixed until Christ returns and fixes it. We're always going to be aliens in a strange land. And we need to be able to recognize that, accept that. And then we're inviting people into a sacred space that is, that does produce what is needed for a flourishing life. And we've lost sight of that part of our message, that part of the hope that Peter was talking about. When I teach this, I say, there are three key words in the New Testament that summarize what the gospel is all about. One is hope. Okay, so it is good news. It's called good news. It's gospel good news for a reason. It is good news. It's not bad news. And so that's hope. The second is reconciliation. That's where the gospel is designed to take us reconcile us to God and reconcile us to one another. Take us back to Genesis 1, when mankind was created to collaborate with one another, male and female, and in the variety that God creates through humanity uh, in the garden that he has placed us before him and to his honor. And then the third uh, category is the word power or enablement. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Greek. That power is the enablement to live in a way that we're able to walk with God. And without the gospel, we don't have the enablement to be able to walk with God, which is why the gospel is the key to the answer. So you committed to the gospel, not because you're waiting for some future uh, ticket to heaven. You're committed to the gospel because the gospel leads to an authentic way of life. Hmm. uh, man, there's so much to go after. This is this is really chal- challenging and encouraging at the same time, and and I'm really sorry to keep harping on the negative. That that is my default mode. I'm sorry, but but um, I I have to wrap my head around the the what the problem is. Isn't part of the problem also? I mean, you said we're strangers and aliens. There had been a time when we didn't really feel that much like strangers and aliens. I mean, we were, we are, but for a, quite a while, I think American, if I can say it, Christendom, we we kind of fit in. We kind of, nobody, nobody really violently hated us. And, you know, our, our voting blocks were kind of winning a whole bunch. It, is, is that part of the problem? Yeah. That's part <laughs> Am of I the messing problem. things up no, more? That's, that's part of the problem. Uh, we've come through an exceptional time in which a Judeo-Christian net kind of wrapped itself around Western culture, including the United States. That's been gone for a while. We're no longer the home team. And we don't realize what kind of changes that means for how we communicate in the midst of that environment. 
You used to be able to go out and say something's true because it's in the Bible, because the Bible was a was a book that was respected culturally and was embraced culturally. Now you have to do the reverse. You have to say it's in the Bible because it's true. You don't need the imprimatur of a book. You need to defend the quality of the ideas that God has said are the authentic ways to live. That's a harder calling in many ways and more challenging mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. But it actually is a reflection of what the Bible is. The Bible isn't a magic book. The Bible is a reflection of a set of ideas about life and the world that come from God that means that what he expresses is so. And we need to dig deep for why that is so and begin to articulate that at least to some degree in terms that people have a chance of understanding rather than assuming that they carry all our theological baggage in the midst of doing that and have to accept a lot of premises on the way in order to appreciate what it is, what we're saying. Now, some cases, you know, that will be hard. That will be resisted. But Jesus spent the second half his entire ministry with his disciples, teaching them, if you go my way, you're going to get pushback from the world. So this is not a mm-hmm. new territory that mm-hmm. we're in. The first century church had no, no political power, no cultural power, no social power. It only had spiritual power, and they did pretty well. <laughs> well, and, and I think we've just, uh, we've just downplayed or ignored all those many warnings. I mean, the... Uh, Jesus said we would be hated. I mean, that's a really strong term. And he said it several times and he, and he tied it to himself. He, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Exactly. But we, but I don't know. We just, well, I don't know. We, we, we didn't want to have that in the initial sales pitch, but then we left it out completely. Well, and we have, so, we, exactly. We have not learned how to walk the way of the cross, which is a way of humility on the one hand. And yet, being different and countercultural on the other. We tried to make the world like the church, okay? It doesn't work that way. The calling is to invite people out of the world into the church. The church is the sacred space where stuff happens, where authenticity happens, where the spirit of God is at work, et cetera. And so when we've set up laws, we think laws will fix or politics will fix. We've been through that experiment. That was the experiment of the Old Testament, Okay. They had God giving laws, but they didn't have an internal change. And so it was a, it's a history of struggle, okay? Without the gospel, which is the answer, that's why God works from the inside out. This is very, very important. So the core of cultural intelligence, getting back to your first question, is to actually understand how central the gospel is to all of this and to not stray from the, the central point of what it is to be culturally well-engaged biblically, and that is to make sure that Jesus is at the center of that engagement and that nothing else replaces Jesus as the answer. Mm. You know, I I remember hearing, um, I I heard it from a couple of different sources and it was so very helpful for me about this idea about dealing with hatred. The world is going to hate you. And it was, um, uh, if you don't have a rich, rich reservoir of realizing your standing in the gospel, your acceptance because of what the Messiah did for you, then you're probably going to react in a in a re- returning hate for hate or returning attack for attack. But if you realize this incredible love that we are uh, accepted into, into the very presence of God because of the sacrifice of the cross, well, people will still hate us, but it won't sting quite so much. And 
Uh, the illustration I heard one uh, preacher say, so imagine if you had um, y- your, your entire net worth was $100 and someone stole $100 from you. Well, it would be devastating. It would be horrible. Your, your, your life would be ruined. But if your entire net worth was a billion dollars and someone stole $100, well, it's the same amount of a theft. But you know, it doesn't quite hurt so much when you've got a billion dollars. And you think of Paul's prayers in the for the Ephesians that that they would they would know just how wealthy they were spiritually. Um, so I think that's that that's a crucial component of discipleship that we just haven't delved into anywhere near as much as we need to. You know, identity is at the core of this, and where is our identity placed? Where is our security reside, etc.? And I think of two passages. One of them you've already mentioned, the Ephesians 1 prayer, which actually extends into Ephesians 2. Most people don't realize that. And it's a prayer for three things, to understand the hope that we have, to understand the wealth of our inheritance, and understand the power that is at work in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And then the beginning of chapter 2, where the Protestant creed is, of course, encapsulated, is the idea of that power has actually been extended to you already. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you've been made co-heirs with Christ. And you've been made co-heirs with Christ through grace, and you are now God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in that first good work, this is where the term reconciliation comes from, is the work of reconciliation to be a witness to it between peoples. And so you put that all together. That's what you've been enabled to do. That's where you're supposed to go. That's where your identity is supposed to take you. Then the second passage is the end of Romans. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Mm. It's not going to be Christ. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be anything. I am assured that no power or principality, things present, things future, anything can, can become between us and the love of God. He has us in his grip. If we have connections to God, we've got more than a billion dollars. You know, uh, uh, we've got the endless reservoir of association with the creator on which we rely and in which we reside. And so if you're there, then that should be the security from which things come. One final point. In any difficult conversation that you have, and and the culture is full of difficult conversations today, there are three aspects to any conversation. The first is what you're talking about. Most people get locked in there. Underneath that is the lens through which you're seeing what's in front of you. To illustrate that, all I have to do is say CNN and Fox. Looking at the same thing, very different stories. But the third layer, the actual driver layer in those conversations when they get tough is your identity. What is it that you reside in? Where do you park? Where is your, where is your, your tribal identity self-awareness? Where does it reside? It must, for people in the church, reside in Christ and not anything else. It can't reside in politics. It can't reside in what's going on around me. In fact, the scriptures tell me that's exactly where not to place it. It has to be in the security that this identity with Christ gives me and the richness of what I feel Christ has for me because what he has for me far transcends where he has me right now. Mm. I'll return to my conversation on questions that matter in just a second. But I I would like to invite each and every one of you to prayerfully consider becoming a ministry partner with the C.S. Lewis Institute. Our ministry is about discipleship, discipleship of the heart and mind, helping people love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
Um, but as you might guess, a, a ministry of discipleship is not always the most exciting thing that uh, people consider. Um, but we we believe that your tuning into this podcast probably indicates that you've had very positive experiences and have benefited from the Institute over the years. So please click the button that says donate and become a ministry partner with us. You have a, uh, you're a, a chapter in your book, Difficult Conversations, How to Make Them Better. Now you've already mm-hmm. started on this, but g- give us a little more help with it. How, how do we make these difficult conversations better, so we, far better? Well, the main thing is, is the, the baseline is we have to become better listeners. We have to be better engagers. We're not debaters. We're not rebutters. Okay. We are people who move towards people. When you have a difficult conversation, you have three choices personally. You can push back. Okay. You can withdraw and become passive and just, I'm not going to go there. I don't want to have that conversation. I'm not going to do anything. In both of those scenes, very little changes. In some cases, it might get worse. Or you move towards a person. Okay. The scriptures call us to love, call us to love even our enemies. It's a call to move towards somebody. That requires listening. And then there are things that we do that sabotage conversations. It's like throwing shrapnel in the middle, a grenade, and letting the shrapnel do the damage. Or there are things that we do that can advance conversations. And so I go through five things that we do that damage conversations and five things that we do that can advance conversations. And most of the things that damage conversations, you can watch 24 seven on television by watching any news channel of your choice. Um, uh, this it's an equal mm. opportunity employer and non-discriminatory in the application of the five things that damage good conversations. So things like what I call the great confession, the great confession is someone brings up something where you are partially responsible for the dysfunction that's going on and you go, yes, but, okay. So you confess briefly, okay. Don't do much penance and then you move on. It's what some people call what about is mm. So you pivot is Mm. what PR people call it. The trouble is what matters to the person who's raised the issue with you is everything that's said before the butt. And what matters to you is everything said after the butt. And you've just had a huge Mm. disconnect and you haven't gone anywhere in your conversation. That's the first one. The second one was what I call the exorcism. These are the big, the first two are the big two. Okay. It's also an equal opportunity employer. It's when you label someone as a way of dismissing getting into the substance of a conversation by simply labeling them. We see it in our ad, political ads, all the time. It's delivered in 30 seconds or less. There are no commercial breaks. And so what you get is, you know, L for liberal or C for conservative or M for Marxist or F for fundamentalist. Like I say, it's an equal opportunity employer. And what you're mm-hmm. doing is this. Do, do, do. <laughs> you're playing taps over the person in, right. in, in identifying them, and you're avoiding getting into the substance of any meaningful conversation in what you do. There are others, but here's, a, here's the big picture. The big picture is, is that most of our public discourse has binaryized our issues in a fallen world. And by making us be all in, all in one side or the other, and making tribal choices, we actually avoid the conversations we need to have, which are that usually there are values, human, important human values that are colliding because we live in a fallen world 
And we need to wrestle with how to balance those values in relationship to each other rather than choosing one or choosing the other. Hmm. Oh man, this is, um, it's so desperately needed. You know, I, um, I keep thinking the kinds of listening, caring, loving conversations that we need to have with people are the exact opposite of what occurs on television. And those kind of really good, meaningful conversations would make for lousy television. It wouldn't be good television. So, so the television that, you know, they have to be, it has to be short, has to be sound bites. It has to be loud. It has to be boom. Now we go to a commercial, lots of sarcasm. And, and, and if that's what, that's how we're discipled about how to talk about these things, uh, it's very, very difficult to just listen carefully and follow up with a question or things like, um, let me see if I'm understanding you. Did, um, uh, when you, when you said this, am I correct that you were meaning this? Yeah. Those, those are, those are hard questions to ask because we want to jump in and assume we know what they're saying. And like I said, it makes for lousy television, but it makes for great in-depth friendships and understanding and caring. Exactly. And so there's a great way to tell whether you're a good listener or not. And that is when you hear something you disagree with, are you forming your rebuttal or are you forming a response that says, let me see if I understood what you said to me in such a way that, that you can see I'm trying to hear what you're saying. Okay. And then you ask for that back. I tell people that when you're in a difficult conversation, your first responsibility is to get a spiritual GPS reading on where that person is coming from. That means you're not going to be making statements. You're going to be asking questions. You're going to be asking mm -hmm. questions about what motivates them. Where's that coming from? And you're not going to ask cynical questions. You're not going to, you're not going to doubt the motives <laughs> of what is motivating a person to go in this direction. You're going to be asking questions about what values that they see that are of value that drive them to ask questions and see things the way they do. And usually there is something to connect to in that response that it, that can build the basis for a more positive conversation than a negative conversation, even though there may be elements in it that are problematic. I tell Christians, you need to put your doctrinal meter on mute. Okay, You don't turn it off. It's not going away. You're going to have it. You're going to react. <laughs> Okay, but put it on mute and just wait and work through where the person is coming from. Get a reading on where they're coming from, because the more you understand about their background and what motivates them, you're actually in a better position to have a conversation with them about about the topic that you're on because of this identity factor that is driving the way they are seeing what is in front of them that may be different than what you're seeing what is in front of you. And knowing what those features are put you in a better place to have a better conversation and usually a more sensitive, a more empathetic conversation. That doesn't mean also that you don't challenge. There will be times when you challenge. But if you send a signal, I'm really working to listen and hear you, you've created an environment for a different kind of conversation than if the first signal you say, send is, I'm here to disagree with you. <laughs> yeah. I have a friend who loves to use this expression. He said, we need... We need to listen for the purpose of hearing, not listening for the purpose of responding. That's right. Now, now, now we do need to respond eventually, but at first it's, let me hear, let me really 
understand. And and there's more to that hearing and listening process than just the content. There's also the emotion. Um, sometimes I listen to someone and and what I say is, um, boy, you're this is really a big deal to you, isn't it? This is this is really upsetting. I'm not even talking about the content. I'm just looking at. I mean, boy, that this topic, uh, it it uh, this is really a, a crucial thing for you, isn't it? Um, and and sometimes that's just helpful to sort of identify, not 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 what they believe, but how important this belief is to them. Yeah. And often in asking a question like that, it's a great question. What you get is the why, what it is deep down inside that causes this person to be so passionately attached to the view that they have. And, um, and what's interesting is, is that sometimes that's a value that you also value. You just may not value it in the area or in the way in which they are applying it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, so that can produce a basis for a kind of conversation that can differentiate between why you may share that value and apply it here, but you're hesitant to apply it there, that kind of thing, which creates a connection. OK, so so what you're what you're trying to do in difficult conversations is to tap that lowest layer that's actually driving that conversation and to get in touch with that and not mm. let the surface layer be the thing. You know, it's like the thing that's often said in marriage counseling. Usually couples are fighting and they're not fighting about what they're fighting about. Okay. They're fighting about something else, Hmm. something else more fundamental Mm -hmm. that's going on Mm -hmm. of which that's a symptom. So, so let me, let me do a little commercial for your book because, um, uh, I mean, there are, there are quite a few books now, I think about cultural engagement or whatever, but what you bring to the discussion that is so desperately needed and and lacking, I think, in some others, is you're primarily a theologian. You're a biblical scholar. And so you say early on um, uh, that your book is a primer um, for this kind of cultural engagement. And you said that um, you're trying to weave together um, wisdom and skill by considering what scripture has to say about engagement. So the, the great strength or the unique angle of your book is you're constantly bringing it back to what do the scriptures teach about our identity, about culture, about engagement, about how to show love to other people. And that's, that's the piece that I think gets perhaps just assumed by Christians, but we need to, we need to dwell on a little bit of, not a little bit, um, we, um, okay, I was a rebel. I was I was lost. I was running a million miles away from God, and He extended His loving grace to me. So, okay, if He's that kind of a God who could extend that kind of saving grace to me, then I can extend some tiny little reflection of that to people around me, right? I mean, that's where we want to keep driving it back to. Exactly. And the other thing that I'm trying to do is most books on cultural engagement talk about the content of issues. I'm talking about the content of the heart. And mm. so, I'm, so this is an inside-out solution to an inside-out problem that needs an inside-out perspective. All that is important in how we go about this. And so the book is majoring, it it makes the point. We may be right about the point that we're making, but if we do it with the wrong tone, we're still wrong. (laughs) Ouch. 
Perhaps you've heard the story of Rosaria Butterfield, a tenured English professor at Syracuse University and a lesbian who became a Christian through the long patient witness of Ken Smith, a Reformed Presbyterian church. Maybe you've read Rosaria Butterfield's book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Well, we have the great privilege through the C.S. Lewis Institute to hear from both of them, Rosaria Butterfield and Ken Smith, on a live stream event coming on Friday, March 27th at 8 p.m. It'll be a great time to hear some of the behind the scenes stories and just to hear both of their voices of how this connection was first made, what they first thought of each other, and what we as followers of Jesus Christ can learn about interacting with people who may seem very, very different from us. So please go to our website, cslewisinstitute.org slash friendship and register for the event. It's free, but we do need for you to register. Again, that's Friday night, March 27th at 8 p.m. Well, um, I want to ask you, you have a question in one of your chapter titles that I've, I don't know if I've ever seen this articulated. It's the, the title of the chapter is, What is the Purpose of Salvation and the Biblical Imperative of Love? What is the purpose of salvation? Now, I'm, I'm, something tells me, since you've written a whole chapter on it, that it's more than to go to heaven. Um, <laughs> So, uh, well, if if that's all it is, then you spend about ten pages on it, uh-huh. and I think there's got to be more to it. Yeah, um, there's a song that I that I used to sing as a young life leader. It goes, "Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. I want to go there." Okay, that's the way some people view salvation: it's this ticket to eternal life. But you've got to ask what eternal life is. Eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. That's what John 17, 3 says. And so eternal mm-hmm. life is not something that awaits heaven. Eternal life is something that begins in a relationship with Him. And if we ask what the purpose of salvation is, I tell people the mistake that we've made in the church is, is that our gospel message begins in Genesis 3 and not in Genesis 1. We start with sin and mm-hmm. work with the problem. But in fact... The whole purpose of salvation is restorative. It's to take us back to why God made it in his image to begin with. And if you ask that question from Genesis 1, the purpose of life seen in the creation mandate is to collaborate together, man and woman. You know, God wasn't totally satisfied with the creation until he brought the woman alongside the man. And they together were to manage the garden collaboratively and to manage it well as the setup for be fruitful and multiply, which means there were going to be many other people like them who also were going to have to collaborate in the management of the world. That's the calling of God to manage the world well in collaboration with one another. Now, sin messed that up. okay? but if you don't know where your starting point is and what your end point is supposed to be in taking you back there, You will think sin is the only problem, but it's not. It's the restoration back to living out the image of God the way God made us. It is where the gospel is supposed to take us. So Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Read that collaboration that makes makes life and the creation hum. 
okay, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then you get a whole series of walks in the second half of Ephesians. Walk in love, walk in unity, walk don't like the Gentiles do, etc. That that articulate what this lifestyle is like at its base. And it's fundamentally collaborative and inviting that reflects the reconciliation that it's at its core which the church is supposed to be the witness to. And when I look at the church's message to the world today, I ask myself, how much reconciliation do I hear in the way we talk to the culture? Hmm. Oh, man. Um, boy, I, I, I feel like I just want to underline a whole bunch of things you just said there, that, that our gospel message begins in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. Very, very important. That, that, that beautiful statement by Jesus in John 17, 3, uh, that this is eternal life, that they may know thee and mm-hmm. Jesus Christ from the sin. That, that's what salvation is. We, we get to know and enjoy God forever. But it, but it begins immediately, it begins now. And it's an enjoyment that we want to invite people into. And that leads to fruitfulness and refreshment and authentic life and flourishing. That's why it's called flowing living water. The Spirit comes into our life and we become this refreshed, this washed, this cleansed presence in the world. That's what the church is supposed to be and that's what it's supposed to witness to. Well, um, I, I really hope our listeners uh, dig into your book and and pursue not, not just what you're talking about in, in the book there, but really a, a really rich theological, biblical basis for all of this so that, yes, we'll still have these, these very practical discussions of, well, how do I, how do I talk to my neighbor? How do I answer this question? How do I, how should I think about this political issue? Because we, we need to, we must, that's mm-hmm. part of living in this world, but not being of it. It's part of loving our neighbor. Um, but, but it has to start and flow out of a rich, rich, deep biblical theology of all of scripture and you've helped us tremendously you know digging into these key passages which i would hope would then shape and train us for reading all of scripture that's right and if you don't have this foundation then when the flood comes the house gets washed away i heard that somewhere that's that's good that's good i Boy, there's a lot to that. Um, anyway, um, well, this is this has really been helpful. Let me get. I want to give you the last word. Well, no, I'm actually going to wrap this up. But is there anything else about this that you really wanted to say that we didn't get to? Um, the C.S. Lewis Institute is all about discipleship, and we we want to help people think uh, deeply about issues and then live out those issues in ways that really uh, help them flourish and the people around them come to know this flourishing. Exactly right. And so, you know, the last chapter in the book talks about a whole way of teaching that we've tended to underestimate that we need to develop, which is what I call from life back to the Bible. And what I mean by that is you take life situations, you sort through the canonical teaching of the whole of the Bible, which assumes you know the Bible pretty well, And you apply that to the situation that you find yourself in. Most teaching goes from the Bible to life and not from life to the Bible. But most people reading their Bibles are reading their Bibles to go from life back to the Bible. We need to teach our leaders how to teach the Bible that way. And I think there's a lot of work here that needs to be done by seminaries and by training, uh, training 
leaders that needs to be done that way. And I have some suggestions about how to think about going that way. Well, uh, Daryl Bach, we're just going to have to have you back because um, we need a, a part two and a part three. Um, and we will do that, uh, Lord willing. But uh, for now, I think we'll um, uh, encourage our listeners to consider these things deeply and reflect on them biblically. Get a hold of Daryl's book uh, to help you dig in this way. And like all of our resources at the C.S. Lewis Institute, we hope this podcast and all the things that we offer on our website, cslewisinstitute.org, will help you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And your neighbor as yourself. Oh, well said. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>